Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message from Real Life Community, where we talk about connecting with God and others, growing in Christ-likeness, and sharing God's life with the world. My name is Sarah Comer, and I serve each week as Connections Pastor, making sure that you know that there is a God and a community that loves you and wants to go through the seasons of life with you. You can find us at reallifecommunity.org, and we would love to meet you on Facebook or Instagram. Until then, we hope this message meets you right where you are and helps you know just how deep the Father's love is for you. Because I'm preparing to be a pastor, that's kind of where I live is in the pastoral process. But anyway, um, so I've in this process, I've got the opportunity to go around to different churches around um, East Tennessee mostly, and um, there's something different about being in front of people you know. Um, it doesn't change the gospel, but as a human being, we're created for relationship, and so when you look out and see familiar faces. It's just kind of a different animal, and sometimes it gets me a little emotional, so forgive me. Um, I'm just excited to be here with you this morning, okay? Today's topic, and this is going to be a difficult one to get through, um, but have you ever thought about why, why the church? I mean, have you ever sat down and thought about why we come here every Sunday morning, why we do this? And while we have youth groups and life groups, you ever given much thought to it? Raise your hand if you've ever thought about that. Just one. Thanks, Colin. Well, I have thought about it, and especially in, in recent months, and probably what started the whole line of thinking was, um, I don't know about you, but there have been several Sundays where I've been at home on my couch in my sweatpants eating my breakfast, attending my worship service. Anybody experienced that? More of you. Okay, good. So in that, it started me to thinking. If I can go to worship service at home, in my sweatpants, eating my breakfast, drinking my coffee, on my couch, watching, preaching from any church around the world, listening to music from any church around the world, then why do we still do, why, why would we continue to do this? Right? Maybe that's just how my mind works and Collins. So... When you compound that with, um, along that line of thinking, and I want to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm almost certain that you've run into somebody in your lifetime who tells a story about church that is different than maybe what you've experienced. Maybe you've come into contact with people who've been um, disappointed in the church, Maybe you've come into contact with people who've been even hurt by the church, um, let down by the church. It happens. Um, You can think about, I I had forgotten about it until just yesterday as I was kind of finishing up uh, my writing. Um, Churches throughout the centuries have inflicted pain on people, and what a depressing thought that is. So why do we still do it? Why do we continue on? Is everybody excited so far? (laughs) Getting off to a great start. Um, So, I'm not going to tell you 
why we have the church, because I'm not an authority on it. But what I will do is open some scripture that I've come across that makes the case for why the church. That's a novel idea. So, if you have your Bible, if you have your app, I was going to have slides ready. I just now came into the 21st century of having slides with my messages two weeks ago. No, three weeks ago. And when I did that, I was like, man, that went so well. I had slides. Everybody could see stuff on the screens. And then the last two times I've spoken, the churches haven't had that opportunity for me. So I just got attached to it, and it's taken away. So I'll read it. You follow in your app or your Bible if you have it. Matthew 21, 33 through 46. Everybody got it? You just going to listen to me? Okay. This is called the parable of the tenants. To give you a little background, Jesus in, the, in this gospel of Matthew right here in this particular section has been going back and forth with religious leaders. Um, the religious leaders of the time are noticing Jesus has a following. They're not excited about it because he is teaching some things that are kind of against what they're teaching. And so he tells this story to the religious leaders who are questioning him. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenant seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Pause right here for just a second. Can you see maybe these religious leaders, as he asked this question to them, they said, we can tell you exactly what he'd do with these guys. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. They knew. And then Jesus said to him, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the, build, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. That's pretty accusatory there. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So, the religious leaders come face to face with Jesus. And rather than him applauding the work that they've done in their religious efforts, he says some things that kind of hit him when hit him in the heart, hit him in the feels. And it paints an ugly picture. What Jesus 
has done is open the scripture for the religious elite and rather than encouraging them and affirming what they've known, it makes them angry. And why is that? If we look at the imagery, Jesus or God has prepared or has called out his chosen people. These people have been put in charge of those chosen people. And rather than understanding that God is the one who's put them in the position that they're in, they have begun to think that this belongs to them, that now they're in charge of this vineyard, of this perfectly prepared area, of this group of people that God's called to him, now they're in charge of it. And Jesus says to them, I know that's what you think, but it's getting ready to be taken away from you and given to somebody who will use it appropriately. God put them in this vineyard to produce fruit, and instead they tried to take ownership. So I ask you again, if it's why the church here and why the church in the scripture, why are we still doing it? Rosy picture, isn't it? So, so why, why should these guys have known better? Maybe this is the first they've heard of that. If that's what you're thinking, let me assure you that if anybody knew that this was not the way to act, it should have been these guys who knew the scripture better than anybody in the, in the known world at the time. Turn with me to Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Or listen to me read it, that's fine. This is called the Song of the Vineyard. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. Talking about God and his calling out of his people. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it off of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Does this sound familiar? Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could, I, could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Similar story, right? These guys in Matthew would have known this very story. They would have known why Isaiah wrote this song of the vineyard. Because the children of Israel early on had made so many mistakes in following God. Who had called them out to be his chosen people. The church, if you will. One of the funnier, uh, maybe not funny. If you remember the story of the Ten Commandments, do you remember when Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments? And when he came back down, what had the people done? 
in the time he was gone, they built a little cow to worship. It took them exactly that long to be, go from the people of God to the people of the cow. Just in the time Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments and came back. You can go back as far as the Garden of Eden. God put them in the garden. I mean, there's no more literal translation of this story than the Garden of Eden. And there was only one rule. Don't eat of the fruit. And they did. And so, if you get the picture that I'm painting here, from the beginning of time, God has wanted a chosen people. From the beginning of time, his chosen people have messed it up. So why the church? Why do we continue? What is our saving grace here? And it's not that we've not been sorry over the years. It's not necessarily that we've intentionally done it. If you look in that Isaiah scripture, um, I'm not going to read it today, but when you're at home this week, maybe look at the next scripture. It talks about um, the people wanting to expand and have more land and have kings and have all these things that the other countries around them have. And God says, I'll leave all that stuff empty. If that's what you want, go after it. But I'm telling you, it'll wind up empty and desolate. And not that they're not sorry. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 70, or excuse me, Psalm 80, verse 7 through 19. Is anybody inspired yet? Anybody feeling real good about this? It's not a pretty picture so far. But they're sorry. They may be feeling like we are this morning, a little depressed by what they're hearing. Psalm 87 through 19. Restore us, God Almighty. There's a good start. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea. It shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? We just found out why. Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted. The sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. Is burned with fire at your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you've raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Anybody ever prayed that? God, if you'll help me this time, it'll never happen again. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. These people sound repentant. They sound like they know what's happened, and they're sorry. And if God will just restore them, they'll never do it again. Um, I hate to spoil it for you, but from this time all the way through to Matthew and to today, it hasn't worked out that way. Because while we feel sorry in the moment, sometimes our humanness kind of gets in the way of our pursuit. Sometimes we want to take ownership of the vineyard. Sometimes we don't realize where the vineyard came from, that God has done the groundwork 
And he's put us there, and through no power of our own has it come to be. And so we feel repentant. But eventually, it all goes back to the way it was. So why the church? Why, why do we continue? Everybody tired of that question? Why, why, are we, why do we keep going if we've messed it up so many times and if we know that we've messed it up, but we ask for forgiveness and we mess it up again? Isn't there another way? Um, I think initially I was kind of thinking that one day we'll get it right and maybe we will but maybe if we think about it a different way maybe it's not about the church at all that seems like a weird thing to say in church for a pastor. But maybe it's not about that at all. You see, if you fast forward all these years later, so we get to Matthew and it's still not working out, we've still messed up, we've still ruined the vineyard that God has put his people in. But see, that, that interaction with Jesus, what they don't know is, it's going to be taken away from them, but not in the way that they think that it's going to happen. Jesus is going to sacrifice himself so that the gospel is accessible to all the people around. You don't have to come through the religious leaders anymore. It's directly through him. So that fixes the problem. But the church continues. And so we pick up in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 14. This is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul has actually started several churches. Um, this one happens to be in Philippi, and he's writing to some of the leaders in that church. And the way it seems is they're starting the same trend. They're beginning to get ownership. They're beginning to feel confident about what they're doing. Notice the verbiage there. What they're doing in Philippi to advance the kingdom. And so Paul says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's fixing to go through a list of why he is, in terms of church people, he's the churchiest guy around. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, that's kind of the highest level you can get to, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He's the top dog. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. This is where the whole thing changes. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose, Christ, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings, become like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. 
Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So, why the church? That's why the church. Paul recognizes after his encounter with Jesus that everything that was his holiness, his striving, everything that he had built, everything he'd been a part of meant nothing compared to his experience with Jesus Christ. And so, this doesn't influence how he interacts with the church. It is the reason for the church. Why the church? Because we've had an experience with Jesus. Because if we have had an experience with Jesus, we want other people to experience the Jesus that we've experienced. We want the life-changing power that we've had to change lives around us. We want the joy that we feel to be the joy that others feel. And so the church is not the result. The church is not the end. The church becomes the means. It becomes a way to express our love for Jesus to other people. You see, in all these places where we've messed it up, it's clear to point out that Jesus gave us the protection of a wall around the vineyard. He gave us a watchtower to see what's coming down the pipe. He planted the plants. He pruned and kept thorns out and weeded. He does all the work so that he can have relationship with us. And so if that's the case, once we have the relationship, there should be an outpouring, and we owe everything back to him. Our ownership is nothing. We're only renters in this vineyard. We owe back to God all the fruit that comes from whatever he does through us. And that's what the Apostle Paul realized. He had persecuted the church in the sake of religion. He'd hurt people along the way. He'd become so zealous with his theology that he was hurting the people who were following the son of the God that he did it in the name of. Everybody catch that? In his pursuit of his religion, he tracked down people who followed the God he worshipped. So, the church should be a place that's full of people who are changed by their relationship with Jesus Christ so much they can't help share it but with others. And there's a gravity to the experience of grace. And the result is the church. So even though you can sit at home in your pajamas or your sweatpants in my case, eat your breakfast, drink your coffee, and watch your worship service, that's not the ultimate purpose for God's church. And those of you watching at home, I'm not downing you. There's a very real disease out there that's scary. But there was a very wise pastor once said, 
the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And so what I'll say to you today is what happens in this building from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. is not the main thing. Our individual relationship with Jesus, our individual relationship with God the Father should drive us to whatever he's called us to do. Bear whatever fruit that he's called you to bear. Live in whatever vineyard he's called you to live in. Don't try and make your church experience bigger or smaller. Don't try and adjust it based on your likes or dislikes. Let God influence your life. And the church will take care of itself. He will prune it. He will water it. He'll send the rain. He'll work the dirt. He does all that for us. All we have to do is be obedient. Now that sounds incredibly simple. And it is. You may be saying, well, I don't know how to be obedient. God's never come out and talked to me. I'm going to give you a couple of things that I know to be true. And you can, you can take it or leave it. God speaks to us through his word. Um, I'll be honest with you. I never would have come to this conclusion. Maybe I would have. It would have taken me a long time. But because I spent time in the Word fleshing this out, God spoke to me through that. If you want relationship with God, listen to what He's saying. If you want to know what His calling is in your life, then pray and ask it. Um, to go through guessing what God's call is on your life sometimes gets us leaning into our own planning and understanding. So we must spend time praying, studying the scripture. We must spend time around like-minded people. I don't know that there's a fix that I can give you, but I can tell you this. If you seek God, he will not fail to answer you. If you pray to God, Lord, help me be obedient. Show me the ways that I need to be obedient. He will not fail to answer you. So for us today, why the church in this rough and tumble world that we're living in right now, where people don't seem to really like each other all that much, where people are fighting over things like, should you or should you not wear a mask in Walmart? I mean, it seems like a good place for a church, doesn't it? Seems like a good place for people who are obedient to what God's called them to do. Seems like a good place for people who are focusing on Jesus. And the love and grace that Jesus shows to us seems like a good place for that to go into the world and grow like a vine. Um, and so, I'd love to maybe expand on this more and more and more but I think I think the point that God has given me to make to you I've given and I've made it to you um, there's no amount of me speaking that's going to change anything what's going to change things is church people who seek God's face and the, and only that so if you will stand with me I can't see the clock, but I don't I feel like that was pretty brief.
that's okay. So let me ask you, as we close out, this question. If you're not seeing the effect that your church should be having in your community, I would ask you at this time, um, we're going to pray, and I want you to spend a minute talking to God and ask Him, or focus on what your relationship with Him is. Because... If things aren't happening, it's not because God's lost his power. Usually, the mess up is on our relationship. So I'd ask you to look, look inside, spend a little time thinking, and I'm going to pray for you. Um, I'm not sure why this makes me nervous, but I'm going to say this too. If you find that maybe your relationship isn't, as focused as it should be. Um, we have these little pads here in the front that you can kneel on, and it kind of represents an altar. And if you feel the need to pray, if you feel the need to reconnect, if you feel the need to refocus, this is a time where we can do that. Um, and if you like, you know, somebody can come and pray with you and help you kind of sort through. But I just want to pray for us as a church that we would seek God's face, that we would not try and do what we know we need to do, but that we would do what he wants us to do. So I'm going to pray. If you'll bow your heads, feel free to come forward and pray, um, and we'll just close out that way, and then I'll bless afterwards. God, we come to you this morning, and we know that a lot of the times we get in the way of your church being what it should be. Uh, because we think it's ours. So I ask this morning for all the people who are listening to me today, whether they're here or in their homes, that your spirit would move in their lives and that you would allow them to refocus, to focus on the God that created them and the God that's planted the vineyard and not what they can profit or what they can take ownership of in that vineyard but realizing that it all belongs to you. I pray that you guide our heart, especially in this time where the world needs a church, the world needs a God who loves them, um, that we could show them what that looks like. Not because of what we are, but because of who you are. And God, as we go throughout um, the remainder of our week and the remainder of our the remainder of our lives, that we keep you number one, that we keep our focus solely on you. God, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you for your blessing in our lives. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could give you a blessing after this blessing service, <laughs> could I say to you, Go not in your own power. Go not in your own understanding. And go not with your own plan, but go in God's power. Go in God's spirit and go under his plan and his guidance for your life. 
Be obedient and let the harvest be what the harvest will be. Do this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.